Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. She's Ann Friedman. She's Aminatu So. <laughs> On today's episode, we are talking about MLK misremembered the death of Mr. Peanut and that age old question Can a woman be elected president of the United States of America? Hi, how's it going? Oh, I'm pretty good over here. You know, I'm so cozy over here. I'm drinking this jasmine tea that I'm super into, so I feel 2,000 years old. What about jasmine tea is like a like a 2,000-year-old person? Jasmine tea specifically always makes me feel old. Like, I'm a tea, as you know, I'm a tea drinker. I don't do coffee drugs, even though I dabbled recently, and as you know, it ended badly. Oh, my God. I actually feel like this is worth mentioning on the show because it's a cautionary <laughs> tale. <laughs> Which is, we were we were on our way to do our final book revisions in the desert, and like high high on the agenda of what we had to accomplish in this week, we uh, we stopped at a Starbies, and uh, shout out to my mother Paula Friedman who always sends us Starbies cards to keep us caffeinated oh, on the road. Oh my god! Thank you, Paula Friedman. <laughs> but we we both ambitiously ordered large beverages late into the day and the physical ramifications were real like I will just speak for myself as someone who does coffee drugs every day it was like a new level of intensity I don't know maybe because I got some sugar in it but I was wired and you you had a psychedelic experience (laughs) I mean okay so the people need to know that I drink two coffees a year maximum and they are watered down iced coffees. It's whenever I'm having a day that I'm like, I just, I need to feel like a mainstream lady out in America. You know, I'll like order an iced coffee. Can I order, can I offer a counterpoint as someone who has been yes. with you? I also feel like you, you are like iced latte when there is a task at hand that you were like, woo, got to get the body on board with this agenda. Like, when you I know, were, yeah. but Anne, don't you think that this is so dumb? Because one, like I am lactose intolerant, so I have no business be drinking iced lattes out here, <laughs> even if, you know, the milk is like the good kind of milk. It's just like, it's offensive to my body chemistry that I do this. And also, I think that the real truth of the ice latte, this is like that feeling of, do you remember right when you turned 21 and you would go to a bar and you didn't know what to order? <laughs> Which like for me always ended up in like seven and seven, you know, like That's the only like reason I've ever I- had a screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, you know, you're like on your, you're just like standing there at the bar and you don't know what to do. And you're like, what did someone in a movie drink once? Or what's the drink that like somebody has mentioned in front of me? Totally. When I am in a coffee shop, that's the constant feeling for me. And so like, I don't know what your, you know, like whenever you and Gina are ordering coffees, I'm like, oh my God, they have three names. I don't know how to do this. I literally just learned that espresso is two S's and not an X. You know, like this is where I am coming from in the coffee culture. And so a latte was always this like very easy, like I will always remember that. But I don't think that I knew it was in a latte except for milk. And I also erroneously assumed that because it's like a milk drink that it's not a strong coffee drink. (laughs) Anyway, 
all of this is what collided into me like having the worst coffee day of my life. Also, I just feel compelled to note for the record that it wasn't just like a coffee panic. What do I order? You ordered a venti, i.e. the one that is like the size of an outdoor construction bucket, like a truly and, large coffee. But it's the same thing. It's like, I don't know what the words mean. And so I'm being so vulnerable with you right now. It was just like my panic. Of, I was at the bar and the bartender was like, what do you want? And, you know, and I'm like, cocaine please two of them in the venti cup and you're talking to someone who does like drug drugs and also like you know does like study drugs coffee is coffee is bad Co- mm-hmm. coffee is mm-hmm. my study drug i still remember when um there there was like you know 15 years ago there was a very like funny stuffy new yorker article about college kids uh doing adderall as a study drug and it was like it was it had that tone of sort of like an out of touch new york times like trend piece you know it was so funny and they had a quote near the very end of the article from like a health expert who was sort of dismissing this as like uh something people should be worried about and was essentially like yeah yeah like coffee's a hard drug too like drinking a bunch of coffee on an empty stomach is the same thing as doing some Adderall and I was just like and my commitment to coffee is renewed I felt like I felt like (laughs) like so empowered by that statement I was like "Mm, without a prescription I can continue to do my favorite drug to help me concentrate (laughs) Listen, anyway. two things. One, whenever I see people drinking black coffee and they're like pouring into the cup, I, that's, I'm just like, oh, wow, you're doing heroin. Like, that's <laughs> how I feel. Um, and two, because I know that my doctor listens to this podcast, I do study drugs sanctioned by a doctor, um, not for recreation <laughs> purposes. So I just feel like I really need to put that out there. As you know, my favorite song by Drake, Strength and Vivance. <laughs> this has been too long in the coffee interlude, but I just need the people to know coffee is the hard drug. And truly, I don't understand how it's not like regulated. Right. And I feel the same thing, but with a different tone. Like I need the people to know coffee is a hard drug and I am so happy <laughs> it's not regulated. <laughs> I feel the exact same sentiment, but with a different tone. <laughs> So we're drinking tea today. <laughs> I'm drinking water, to be to be honest, right this moment. So, hey. <laughs> well, what are we talking about today? Mm. On our agenda today is we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, MLK Day as an institution and also as a thing that inspires a lot of quote sharing on the internet. Um, we're going to talk about whether a woman can be president, LOLOL, but seriously. It was just MLK Day. How was yours? You know... How was it? My MLK day was frankly like a standard work day. I am sad to admit to you. Like it was really just uh, get my head back into the game. I used it the way I think a lot of people use a three-day weekend that is a federal holiday that no one is making them think harder or do more about, which is to say I just, I caught up in sleep and I caught up on work. How was your MLK day? You know, it was kind of the best of both worlds in that I got to do a volunteer project, which is how I like to spend my MLK day, but it was only for a couple hours in the morning. And then I got to catch up on the rest of just like setting my life up. Mm. And my feelings about MLK day are always very strong when I work in like a corporate settings where I really feel that it is racist to make me work on this holiday. Um, and when I work for myself, I really feel that it's a body's choice. So That is true. You, you are know. contributing to like a, a, a corporation owned by a black woman in this country every time you work for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and it's also the kind of thing where 
I'm okay there to me is just a very wild kind like one I'm like very I'm shocked that America even acknowledges MLK Day like the America of today you know in a sense where I'm like okay here is uh you know it like on its face is actually a really good thing and it does like genuinely surprise me that there is you know like a, a black revolutionary that people and by people I mean like white people are like great like you know maybe this one belongs in the canon but at the same time, they've like neutered the message so much that it makes sense that they're okay with it. So it's like a MLKJ is always kind of a mindfuck. Right. And it's also especially in like our our heyday of social media where like institutions, like everything from every fast food restaurant to uh, the FBI is tweeting about how like, isn't it amazing that it's MLK Day? And it's sort of like the FBI tweet was wild. <laughs> It was wild. It's like, excuse me, didn't you send MLK a letter that he should kill himself? Why do you get to celebrate MLK Day? Yeah. Um, It is really... And also, I mean, like, to be totally honest, if if there had been some kind of, like, public and systematic reckoning with the policies toward, like, civil rights activists and leaders, like, maybe it would be okay to say something like that, right? Like, like you do get to acknowledge the, con- the contribution of people if you also acknowledge, like, the ways in which you actively worked against them at the time, or, like, if you actively acknowledge your role in um, their, <laughs> their demise, frankly, you know what I if mean? If doing if. so much work in that sentence. If. <laughs> But I think no, that's agreed, important. Agreed with you. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think that the capitalism of it, so the brands and the whatever, is that's that's a mindfuck because so much of MLK's agenda was actually about economic freedom for everyone, right? And so that's one leg of the stool. The other leg of the stool is the is the political angle. It is truly wild to me, and I don't say this like facetiously at all. Like it really like genuinely um, you know, exploding emoji head, like that's how I feel about it when Republicans quote MLK. Oh my God. And he has become this like very kind of gentle figure. It's how like almost every city has an MLK street like in the black part of town. And so, and you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. Very few Malcolm X's, but a lot of MLK streets. But with Republicans specifically, you crusaded against this person, definitely have a hand in like his demise. And also you actively hate everything that he stands for. But out of context, you have found like, two like lines that you can quote all the time and even those two lines taken out of context are not things they're not like practicing what they preach i'm just like how is the ghost of mlk now haunting all these people if i when i think about it too much it's actually very painful and hurtful and so staying in this place of suspended disbelief is how i you know like i keep my mind intact right but it's also related to i mean it it is totally inextricable from how the civil rights movement and how race more broadly are taught in a lot of environments. Like I would say like every environment of America that is not like actively kind of radically anti-racist, the lessons about MLK from my upbringing were definitely contextualized by the modern moment. So if you hear about like if, if you if you read quotes from his speeches or if you hear about things he advocated as like a kid in the 80s and 90s who was growing up in a real racial wealth and privilege bubble. It's like, oh yeah, like all that stuff he's doing sounds totally reasonable. Of course the FBI wouldn't have hated that. You know, I mean, it like it really kind of fits with a failure to properly contextualize a lot of other things that are going on with race and inequality in this country. It's so telling that that quote that the FBI tweeted was, the time is always right to do what is right. 
<laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's like, like it's truly, you know, and it's not just out of context, but it's like, it's almost like they did a search for the most innocuous possible quote and then you know twitter a perfect medium for just putting things out there that just sound generally okay without actually supporting them it's like yeah like at the time doing what was right was like actually against the written law you know what i mean like actually the right. doing what was right then and and when it's tweeted by an institution like the fbi it makes it sound like doing what's right is like upholding your like quote-unquote american values and like the institutions that are actually perpetuating this stuff it is really I know you know and then the other side of this for me is also watching like very well-meaning you know like kind of moderate people you know not brands not like super politically inclined people also thinking that this is just like a quote you know like it's it's a day to like fire up the quote machine it's just such an ahistorical read of this person it's like actually MLK is you know, like one of the, you know, I'm like, if you love him so much, name his five best albums. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, like one of the common refrains from him is that the white moderate is actually like very harmful to the cause and the huge hindrance of the civil rights movement. This was literally just a couple of decades ago. And how quickly that history has been rewritten concerns me a lot. And it concerns me a lot the way that we learn history in school and the way that we talk about it out of school and just the way that we neuter a lot of um, pretty like radical leftist people, you know, it's the same. It's like when you think about Rosa Parks, oh, it's the same thing yes. for me where she's just, be she's like now in the, in the American historical canon is just this like really nice grandma who needed to sit down. I'm like, are you kidding me? This woman was like a rape investigator. First of all, she was a she strategist. Was a yeah. Yeah. She was like a shit starter. She'd been like doing it forever. She was not the first woman who took a stance by sitting on a bus during the civil rights movement. It's actually very telling of American society that she's the one that got noticed for doing it. This was just decades ago. And if we're already lying about this, what else are they lying to you about that happened before that? There's something like very insidious and ugly about it. And very much like I, I know that there is so much that I don't understand about MLK. And I also, you know, on a personal level is a very kind of difficult figure to even get around because, um, you know, stuff at home was like mm -hmm. complicated with him. And then the stuff that you see on the screen and there is a kind of particular sexism of that era, even within the civil rights movement, that is so hard to square against the ideals of like freeing people from capitalism and freeing people from slavery and all of these things. So th there's just so much texture there and to have it all, you know, being reduced to watching people share quotes is uh, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Right. I remember like being in journalism school and reading for the first time, the kind of contemporaneous accounts of how the civil rights movement was covered, not just by the major papers in the South, for example, but like by the New York times. And it was greatly informative of how I read the news as a critical person now and greatly informative of how I think about the possibility of quote unquote objective news and how I think about the like golden age of how these stories were told. And you can really start to draw a line between, oh, right, even at the time, his story was told or not told in this very specific way. And it's like, no wonder we get to this place where it is completely distorted. Ooh, well, see you next year at MLK Day. Yes. <laughs> See you on the quote machine. In the quote machine. Well, let's take a little break.
Mr. Peanut has died. R.I.P. Okay, I saw this trending on Twitter and I was just like, I literally <laughs> saw it, saw it, looked at it, closed the window again, like in, a, in one swift move, in one swift move. Um, well, I, here's what someone sent it to me because, and I like truly don't care about Mr. Peanut, but the thing, the reason is because I'm obsessed with like Twitter display names and the Mr. Peanut account has changed their display name to be the estate of Mr. Peanut. And I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, honestly, of course, this, of course, this guy in the top hat and monocle has like the estate of Mr. Peanut on Twitter. Like, goodbye. I know. But it's also like definitely I, I mean, I don't want to click on it because it definitely has to be some sort of brand activation. Oh, it totally like, is. He sacrificed himself to save his friends when they needed him the most at 104. You know, I'm like, what kind of weird ad are you guys running now? But, uh, you know, also like a bold move to kill, you know, to kill your like face of your brand, uh, you know. As I said to my friend, roast in peace. Um, um, do you know Mr. Peanut's full name? No, Mr. Peanut has a full name. Mr. Peanut, <laughs> Mr. Peanut is his um, is his like uh, you know street name is his advertising name. Um, he so what's his government name? His, his proper name is Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smith. <laughs> well, okay, you also know that Mr. Peanut is gay, right? I mean. I could have guessed. He's a gay but no. capitalist. He's a gay <laughs> capitalist with a problematic legacy. I'm reading this headline from Mel Magazine. <laughs> Here's what I do appreciate about Mr. Peanut is like he's really just naked. You know what I mean? It's like he's not even Donald Ducking it. Like Mr. Peanut is like just No, he's Mr. Peanutting it. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm sorry, this Mel thing is hilarious. I'm gonna read it to you. The headline is The Problematic Legacy of Mr. Peanut, um, comma gay capitalist. <laughs> and <laughs> the description out and proud or not mr peanut has lived for a century as a slave trading aristocrat selling his fellow legumes to a gruesome death by mastication wow (laughs) you know i do always find it weird whenever food brands use the food as the face of the food you know it's like why are they eating themselves that's like barbecue places called mr oinkers or whatever like yes i know (laughs) oh also, Planters as a brand name has never sat well with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is just a too close for comfort to plantation. I just <laughs> love a monocle. You know what I mean? That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to find my way back. I'm like groping in the groping in the darkness to find my way back to something that feels like not just us on an absurdist tangent. <laughs> I know. I feel like the closest political thing to Mr. Peanut is probably Pete Buttigieg. So, you know, speaking of Mr. Peanut, speaking of Pete Buttigieg, speaking of the election, what do you think about what's going oh on? Oh my god. Right I is okay, that's a good question. I actually feel like this is a like is it Pete Buttigieg? I don't know. I think you're being swayed Mr. by the Peanut mal- is assessment 100- that he's a gay capitalist. <laughs> I know, but he's like 100% people, like same height, same like, you know, McKinsey-ness, um, you know, but also like a little bit of Andrew Yang energy, I have to say. The aesthetic is off. The aesthetic is just off. I'm sorry. Like the, the bio points line up, but the aesthetic is not there. The, That's the- how Pete Buttigieg fans feel and <laughs> the aesthetics are not there. <laughs> Oh, there you go. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is like the aesthetics of like Midwestern microbrew, like wedding at a Midwestern microbrewery is kind of like the Pete Buttigieg campaign wow. aesthetic. That is taking me out. That is, wow. I feel like we have to talk about whether or not a woman can be president in the year 2020. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I go back and forth on this. On one hand, 
we keep getting closer and closer and on the other hand sometimes i go to bed and i think that the woman who's going to be president is probably not even born yet (sighs) yeah i mean i think we kind of I was not eager to talk about this whole exchange between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, wherein uh, he claims that he was just like, listen, it's going to be hard for anyone to beat Trump because he's real bad. And will you go, you know, say say dirty, terrible things about any aspect of your identity that he can. And Elizabeth Warren heard, I don't think a woman is going to be elected president in this country um, or says that is what was conveyed. I am of the camp that much like many things in which meaning is as much inferred as it is like overt and like on the table that they both are probably 100% secure in like, this is exactly what I heard slash this is exactly what I said. And also that they are both right, which is to say that like, my feeling has always been like the biggest barrier to a woman becoming president is people thinking no one else will vote for a woman. Like the statistics are essentially women. There's a CNN poll from this week in that shows women saying 20% of women saying a woman cannot win and only 9% of men saying a woman cannot win. And that is like partially rooted in some truth. Women being like, we know that when push comes to shove, like men don't think specific women are up to this job. But I also think that there's just this sense of like despair that has set in and rightfully so. And um, and it's easier to kind of externalize that despair on everyone else rather than say, like, I personally wouldn't do this. I mean, I 100% agree with you. And, uh, you know, friend of the pod, Rebecca Tracer mm-hmm. wrote about this, I thought, in a really smart way in the cut. And the gist of her piece, which I thought was so, um, you know, is basically the point that you're making is that worrying that it will make it tough for women in politics, like thinking that doesn't make someone sexist, which is, you know, what Bernie Sanders is saying. Right. That's different from saying I won't vote for a woman. Right. Right. Yeah. That is different. It's not sexist. And I, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, they're both right. Mm -hmm. So worrying that women are going to have a hard time in politics doesn't make Bernie Sanders sexist. But for women to hear every day, like for them to hear those worries all of the time and to metabolize them and also to see how discouraging it is, doesn't make uh, Elizabeth Warren a liar. And so it's a very kind of interesting conversation to have because you're right, everyone kind of imbues their own meaning into what they're talking about. But at the same time, this conversation to me is fascinating because it's obviously happening on the left. And to have so many people on the left, like cry that you know their candidate is being called a sexist and that he's a misogynist and blah 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 which is clearly not all that's going on here is that worries me in terms of like i'm like if we are not getting this conversation right you we're not going to get this conversation right in a national election and i think that rebecca's point also that was like something that i haven't stopped thinking about and it's this like line that she wrote in the article about how um talking in any kind of honest way about marginalization becomes a trap for the marginalized Mm -hmm. is something that is so like that has stayed with me since, since I read this, because to me, that is like the crux of the matter. It's why can you like, and by you, I mean like we, why can we not be honest about how things are hard for people? Like no one is calling anyone sexist or misogynist. I'm like, we actually have the words for that. And when we want to call you sexist or misogynist, we can just do that. But I think that it's so silly on its face 
to make women feel that it's not gonna be hard for them to be president for reasons that have nothing to do with personality and that it's it's hard if it wasn't hard we would already had a woman president and it's also hard to have this conversation and not think of the the backdrop of the last election right where everybody was very much like here are the specific problems with hillary clinton and they have all of their own feelings about that and not recognizing also that the reason that that woman gets to be the first woman who can run in a real way for president is because she's a circumstance of the of uh, every way that like sexism has shaped politics in her time. Of course, you have to be married to like a former president to run as the first woman president. Of course, you have to have this kind of access. Of course, it's not a coincidence that the next woman who's running for president is literally a teacher and like sounds like Tracy Flick. I was like, these are the ways that women accede to power. If it was not the case, we would be having a different kind of conversation altogether. Yeah, and it's funny, when when you said last election, I was actually, I have been thinking a lot more about how 2008 felt, specifically when you made that comment about how pointing out this kind of deep bias and unfairness like always does not work out well for the people who are actually <laughs> suffering as a result of that bias and unfairness. It made me think of an essay that Adam Serwer wrote back in 2008 about Barack Obama and about how any attempt to point out not even like people as racist, but like pointing out like like tropes as racist or pointing out comments as like racist or pointing out assumptions as racist immediately became a negative thing against Obama. And um, and he, mm-hmm. he wrote something very astute, which is that like, you know, when the narrative is dominated by white people and the common white experience is of being accused of of racism as opposed to like experiencing like the hurt and pain of actually being on the receiving end of it, it is going to be the default of the discourse to kind of say like, oh, what about the the horrible experience of being accused? And it, like I've been thinking about that a lot with relation to this like Warren and Sanders thing where it's like immediately, it cannot be, as you said, a conversation that is like a really serious reckoning with the messages that women are giving about, given about their electability. It has to immediately become a defense that like Bernie isn't sexist in the same way that like a lot of those conversations when people pointed out things that were fucked up about how Obama was being described or treated were immediately characterized as how dare you call someone racist as a result of this? It, it feels like it is not an exact parallel, but like that, I have been thinking a lot about that piece and about like 2008 in particular. Um, because man. <laughs> One thing that I've been particularly frustrated by is that basically pop culture stan culture is what is happening in politics also. People are just like stands of their candidates. And I was like, well, Actually, you should be deeply distrustful of anyone who is running for president just because they're running for president. Running for president is corny. Um, And one of these people is going to save us, but you cannot believe in them so much that you don't see something that's wrong in either of them. Like, none of these candidates are perfect. Right, like, keep Um, your critical faculties about you. (laughs) I know, but people don't. And I'm talking about, like, on the left. You know what I mean? This is not a... Forget the other side. Like, that has been, like, really wild to, to just... to take in... And it's one of those things I was like, if you're an Elizabeth Warren fan and Bernie Sanders wins, that's obviously the America you want to live in. And if you're a Bernie Sanders fan and Elizabeth wins, that is also an America you want to live in. It's not the best America that you could have either way. Like, I'm sure that that's how people feel. But I'm like, wouldn't you want to live in either of those Americas better than you want to live in the America that you have right now? Probably. So that's one thing that's always been baffling to me. But also just this idea that just on its face, that women cannot talk about the electability issue as it 
is and that there's not like a narrative around that that and to be fair that narrative about around electability is not shaped by politicians it's not shaped by bernie sanders it's not even shaped by donald trump it's shaped by the media and so thinking about how we cannot have these like constructive and critical conversations and how that's a problem actually for the future of all of our ideas and the future of what we want the country to be is it just it concerns me greatly it's funny i actually thought you were going to end that sentence slightly differently because it definitely is related to the media but i i would have finished that sentence with is because of like the lived everyday experience of sexism and how entrenched it is and it's like when i i really just think back like when I saw that CNN poll that was like 20% of women say a woman can't win versus 9% of men say a woman can't win is because men are not on the receiving end of the kind of subtle and pervasive sexism that women are. And and like, right. yeah, and really, but yeah, I, I, but, but I mean, sorry, no, ahead. but I guess I, I just want to say that like, and it's that lived experience of saying like, I have not ascended to the job I'm capable of in my own workplace or my home it features an unequal division of labor, like that kind of really deep personal knowledge of the ways in which um, there is still not gender equality in this country. Like that is an informing factor as much as like how are women talked about or like what Bernie Sanders did or didn't say. I I deeply understand that as a woman and I also deeply understand it as a black person, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's this thing that it happens on multiple levels and not like this refusal to hear people out on what their personal experience is, is uh, it's not great. And also it's like, I always think about the fact that all of these conversations, whether it was like about Obama and whether he was electable or whether it's about Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar or, you know, the, the, the one that's like a psychic, like <laughs> whether they're electable or not. Orb gang. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who is that lady? Um, the thing, but the thing that I think about a lot, right. Is that like behind the joking about it and behind the, this thing, there's actually like a deep pain there. And so it's like, forget the candidates, but like the people who are having these fights online and the people who are the the the, re- the the voters there there is a real pain there and so when i hear women just like doubling down on you know like being like elizabeth warren's my is my lady and i believe her i was like of course you believe her because there is something about your own experience that is true about that and this and it's kind of the same thing that i always tell my white friends whenever they get defensive about sexism is i'm just like is is the 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 perception of you being a misogynist or maybe a racist is that the same as someone experiencing misogyny or, or racism you know and having and having like some honest like who is being harmed and how much pain is there there and so you know we're going to have elections forever and ever and ever but i am hopefully just, <laughs> Um, well, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe the strong man will finally step in and this is the last election. But I just, you know, it's like setting the politics of it aside. I think that you're right. It's like a lot of this is also just like playing out in this very interpersonal way. And so this conversation is just, um, it's a frame for all kinds of other conversations that we're having. Like, of course, there is not fair division of labor in like most people's marriages. They're like, are you kidding me? There is not a fair division of labor in the workplace. There, uh, women have not ascended to the highest levels of power. If everything was hunky dory, we would have been here. Like, so what is the, what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about this? And, 
you know, I don't know. It's just like a kind of really willful um, misunderstanding of what's going on. It's also not lost on me that all of these women, you know, like everybody who's running for president is in a later stage in life. So watching people in their like 20s and 30s argue about this, I was like, okay, even if you don't believe Elizabeth Warren now, let's see how the course of your career shapes out and uh, what you're going to learn about like what the world is like. And I don't know. This is all a circuitous way of saying that I am just like very disappointed in how these conversations shake out because, you know, short of ad hominem, I would feel very differently about this conversation if Elizabeth Warren had like come out saying like Bernie Sanders is sexist. Then I would say like, show me some receipts. Like, what are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. But this is not how the conversation shook out. And the meaning that everyone is making out of it is so, um, some of it is really beside the point of what the issue is. If we had, ha- if we had a healthy uh, gender dynamics and we had parity, we would not be having conversations about whether women are electable or not. Yeah. And I, no matter who those women were. And, and the part that also makes me really sad, like is, is about the ways in which um, these messages are like coming from inside the house. You know what I mean? Like, and, and again, this yeah. is why I think the kind of is, is Bernie Sanders a sexist is like so far afield from the actual point. Like there's this anecdote in Rebecca Traster's piece where she describes interviewing Elizabeth Warren in 2018. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read it because it, I find it so heartbreaking. So Rebecca writes, we were talking then about the kinds of things she'd been told back in 2011 when she was considering a run for the Massachusetts U.S. Senate seat against popular Republican incumbent Scott Brown, who had beaten a woman, Martha Coakley, in 2010. Warren remembers the phone calls telling her, you can run, but you better understand, Massachusetts will not elect a woman to an office this big. Those calls, she told me, were friendly calls. That was the saddest part, the most infuriating part about these calls. They came from people who wanted to be kind, but wanted to make sure that I understood the hard reality of America. Oof. That is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and it's true. Who doesn't know that? Like, who doesn't know that in their bones that it's true? People who have not experienced it firsthand. (laughs) Like, I think that's true for... Right, but, and there are also a lot of women who, like, push these messages, who are like, this is not my lived experience, and fully, like, and I'm, you know, and I think that it's really easy to be, like, there's a lot of internalized misogyny, sure, like, a lot of women are, can also have these ideas, but it's just, that on its face, to me, I'm like, the story of America, like, bears that out. Oh, for sure, and I, I guess I didn't mean, I didn't mean to disagree about, like, the veracity of that statement. I guess I'm just, I'm thinking more about, like, Um, also who do we give permission to kind of articulate that and like how can we talk Mm. about this experience without it being a self-fulfilling prophecy because part of me is like I really wish that like the the Bernie Sanders response had been even more emphatically to kind of say essentially what we have just said like you know that like like American life is still so deeply unequal and like that contributes to this feeling that like you know this country will not back a woman for a job like this. And that does not mean that a woman is not capable, but like, you know, just like some kind of greater recognition of, um, you know, as we were saying, the kind of lived experience and, and pain of that. And then there, then you wouldn't have to have a situation where like the previous iterations of this campaign or essentially up to now where you have Elizabeth Warren, you know, aside from being asked directly about it in an interview, um, you know, really downplaying the kind of, pain and um you know hurdle that phone quote-unquote friendly phone calls like that and like that attitude represents like you know like what if we could what if we could fully acknowledge that and also say like okay like we're gonna all collectively decide not to 
you know, we're going to, we're going to vote, we're going to vote about how we wish things were. And I actually think that like, you know, there, there's been many things said about like, like Obama and yes, we can as a message and things like that. But like that as sort of this rebuke to the idea of like, no, we can't have a black president like was, was a really brilliant. I mean, obviously that slogan is doing a lot of work in a lot of different ways, but I think in the context of this conversation, it was like, like, no, you get to decide that we can in fact have a black president if, if, Mm -hmm. if you will it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just also a thinking about, I, this is like one of those places that I, I think like one of my central frustrations also is how, again, like people who are stands for candidates are the worst person, the worst people to carry some of these messages sometimes, because you're absolutely right. It's like this, this disagreement between these two candidates could have been such, it could have been a way for both of them to, there could have been a way for both of them to make their points better. And so whenever I hear people be frustrated that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, whenever they say like Bernie Sanders doesn't care about women or he doesn't care about black people, I was like, I don't believe that. Like, obviously not. Like, you don't get to do the kind of work. Like, you know, I'm like, Bernie Sanders is not a racist. and He's not a misogynist. Um, I love when Republicans say, like, I don't know what's in their hearts. I don't know what is in his heart. But um, <laughs> I I think that a, a place where I get frustrated a lot with this discourse is I was like, there is a way to say both, like, I am not sexist and I am not a misogynist, but also here's the truth of where our country is. At, totally. You know, and really, and using that to pivot away from you because I think that sometimes that is literally all people are asking for. Right. That's all they're asking for is for you to acknowledge that the shit sucks. And at the same time, um, you know, I, again, I was like, nobody is a, you know, like nobody here is God. So you don't have to give them your full devotion. Like keep, like keep your brains on. And, yeah, and it's just it's just frustrating from the point of this is what a primary is for is to get the person with the best ideas to win. And when we are still in this place where we are not learning the lessons of pretty much every past election that we've had, I was like, how is the general election going to go? Mm-hmm. Because it's like it's it's a bloodbath and it's going it's going to be so it's going to be so tough and you're right. It's like so so many of these calls are coming from inside the house and it doesn't feel good to have the feeling of, um, you know, if one of these people wins, if like Klobuchar wins, like someone who supports Elizabeth Warren wouldn't get behind her or if like if Sanders wins, like, you know, like this feeling of like there is not you're not going to like double down on who the future of the country could be. I think that that is a, you know, it doesn't feel great. It just doesn't feel great. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it's also like. I don't know. I mean, I I am definitely going to be canvassing and working for whoever gets this nomination. And I think that like there is a feeling that is even more widespread than the regret of about how this went down in particular. That's like, can we please not make, can we please like reroute this conversation to a direction that feels like it is acknowledging the reality um, without like, yeah, without doing, you're right. It's like without doing this kind of like fan culture stupidity. Um, in order to kind of recognize that we all have to be on the same page within a very, very few number of months. <laughs> right. Um, this is also a great segue to um, the great segue to the next thing that we want to talk about. Oh, my God. Because this, you know, like this idea that because I'm hearing this so much and 
one part of me is like, God, this can't be true. And then on the other hand, I'm like, this probably happened in the last election anyway. This idea that like, uh, you know, like if Bernie wins, the Warren fans are going to stay home. And if Elizabeth Warren wins, like the, the like whatever, the, the vice versa mm-hmm. of that. And was this uh, Hollywood Reporter cover with uh, Hillary Clinton on it? Oh, man. Uh, about this documentary that is premiering that I am so excited to see at Sundance this weekend. Um, but, you know, the like her saying uh, that nobody likes him, like legit made me cackle out loud, Anne, because I don't think I've ever heard that said about a man in power out loud before. Like it, it like fully, I was like, this is hilarious before, before like everything else about it set in. And I obviously like have to watch the documentary to see it in full context and, and see what this is about. But I think that the prevailing feeling from this, um, you know, from, from the quote and from the trailer or whatever was that Hillary Clinton was saying that she would not um, support who the nominee was if, uh, if that nominee was Bernie Sanders. She has obviously said that that is not true on, um, on her social media, but I thought that the kerfuffle around it was so interesting. Well, I mean, I guess like I, I, I feel for me that it was like the, a lot of the conversations we have about like women in electability have been really questions about like Hillary in electability, like frankly, which mm-hmm. has been pointed out repeatedly, like, you know, and. Right. That's what all of the research is about is like, can Hillary Clinton be president? And we don't have any research on can a woman be president? Exactly. And so I'll be honest that when I saw these headlines, I had this like feeling of weariness where I was just like I don't fucking care what Hillary thinks about this like I really am like (laughs) I'm ready to have a conversation that is that is actually about women in politics and I want it to be women and I want that to mean women in like every iteration and like of what that word means not just like old white women and not just Hillary Clinton right you know like I want it to mean to mean the full breadth of that word. And I want, I want to live in the reality where we're talking about that because I imagine it will be a very different conversation. And so I just had this frustration where I'm like, you know, I mean, like, sure, I will click through and read what like Hillary has to say about Bernie today. But like at the end of the day, I'm just like, I don't care. Like, I really don't care. Like whether, you know, it was taken out of context or you do think Bernie is whatever. Or like, I just, I not to say I don't care about her as a public figure, but like I am in this moment right now where I am really like, just desperate for a conversation about women in politics that's not a Hillary in politics conversation. And I feel like that article just like, I was like, I ugh, I clicked, but with a heavy heart. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm excited to watch the documentary because I want to see it in context. I the, And one reason, honestly, Anne, that I thought that it was interesting is because um, all of these questions about electability are always about women because the, the pervasive feeling during the 2016 election, when so many people were saying Hillary Clinton's not electable, but we would vote for another woman. We're now seeing another woman up uh, for the job and somehow the questions are the same. Right. And that was a feeling that I had. I was like, mm, like, let, let's see, you know, like who is the woman that everyone's going to be excited about voting about and h- how will she not be like dogged by all of these, these same kinds of accusations And so I think that that was one thing that I, I don't know, I've been thinking about that a lot. I've also been thinking a lot about how um, men just do not face these same kinds of questions. You know, there's like, Bernie Sanders does not strike me as a cuddly, uh, nice person. And that's not what I need in my president. So I'm not saying that that should be the case. I was like, you are a competent person who does your job, who like cares deeply. Like you have every quality that I want in a president. But the the fact, like there's just no 
you know, and this is a futile exercise in so many ways, but it's like, I think about like, who is the woman of his generation that could be just like him and still have all the shots that they have? Someone who's been in Congress for 30 years, you're not sure that they've ever even passed a bill for a stamp, you know, and then they're always trying to like yell at you and give people free shit. I was like, who is the woman who gets to do that? And so it's just, I don't, um, I don't say that to say, uh, it's not an exercise in like a, if a woman did this, she wouldn't get elected. But I do think that part of having this conversation is pointing out these differences of part of why this Hillary Clinton thing ruffled a lot of people is also because, um, it's not an issue whether like a man is likable or, you know, like that's not a point in the electability. We literally have like the worst human being as president. And no, that was not a, you know, I like, I don't think that any pollsters over there were going like, oh, like what if he were nicer? What if he baked cookies? What if he toned it down? You don't what have to worry about that. If you have, instead? if you activate white nationalist impulses, you don't have to worry about no. things like that. <laughs> I know, but I, but I still think that it is like instructive on how we have these conversations because I like part of the reason that like being a powerful woman in this way is not interesting to me in the least. Like there's not enough money to make me want to do this because one public office doesn't pay a lot of money, but two, <laughs> like there is something just like very much. I was like, why would you, if you are a woman, like why do you put yourself through this knowing everything that you know about it? And I like, and this is true for Republican women also like the high wire act of both being like hyper competent and fitting this mold of what a powerful woman TM is supposed to be, it's, it's something that's so tough and it's never anything that, like all kinds of men get to run for office, whether you're Bernie Sanders or, you know, like one of those. Whether uh, you barely won I your was, race for mayor. <laughs> right, you barely won your race for mayor. It's like Elizabeth Warren has like beat an incumbent Republican before. No one else who's running against her that's a man has done that. And I was like, shouldn't that count for something? Uh, it's it's just like all of these things are interesting to me. It's like on, yeah, on the men's side, there's like Bernie Sanders. There's like those three dudes that they all look like Florida basketball coaches. I cannot tell them apart. There's so many of them. It's like the range, the the kind of man that you can be to run for office, it seems like it is limitless. And when you're a woman, it is actually a very limited kind of possibility, both in the imagination of the country and probably in like your own personal imagination. And so I... I think that the the Hillary quote in that context was it activated a lot of this thinking for me. And, you know, and in the end, it's like she came out and said, like, whoever the nominee is, is who I'm going to support. And also, again, like when I go back to like the media, the media is who is shaping these narratives. It's like a I yeah, I am dying to have a conversation about women in politics writ large that is not anchored by you know, the, the full weight of just like one woman's political career. There's an entire institution that could make that happen for me. And so far, they're not interested in doing that. Yeah. And and that and I feel like that last statement is exactly like what I was getting at when I was like, woof, when I clicked this, <laughs> when I clicked it, I was just like, uh, I don't know. Um, I, uh, I will tell you that I am, uh, I don't know. I am like engaged in a way like I am, I am one of these people that's like, okay, now that it's actually primary season, I'm like following this stuff in a way that I sort of deliberately was not up to this point um, for reasons of like long game. And also just almost like as a protest vote, like I really believe that like the electoral process should be shorter in this country. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tune in. I'm going to tune in at like at the juncture of the primaries. But I am, I am also starting to think about like, what are the rules for myself around how I'm keeping perspective on every twist and turn and quote, be it from a current or former candidate. 
Right. I um I watched that like Vice Brown and Black uh forum. I hope I'm saying it right. Sorry if I didn't. Um but it was funny because I cuz I I have not watched and I think I watched one debate, but I really have not been tuned in to the the ups and the downs of the race or whatever. And it was funny because watching that forum was the first time that I heard from at least four of these people who are seriously running to be president. And I was like, Oh, Amy Klobuchar, that's what your voice sounds like. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on it, but very much like whoever wins, I, I will throw my full weight behind you. But also, you know, just like always be critically thinking of these people. Okay. And with that, I will see you. I will see you at the polls. See you on the internet. Where will I see you? I don't know. I'll see you in New York next week. (laughs) I'll see you in New York next week. (laughs) You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.